We meet today in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 33. The church will be the bride, and we are looking at the expectation of the church. Now, in many pagan marriages of the first century, the husband was much older than his wife. He frequented other sex partners, taking on a wife only to father legitimate children. Thus, a girl of 13 or 14 years entered an arranged marriage, frequently against her will and often with a man she had never previously met. There was little communication, cooperation or affection or even expectation of these. But new life in Christ called for new patterns in marriage. Paul instructed the husband to love his wife and seek her personal development, a radically new idea in that culture. The wife was to respond with commitment and loyalty. Her submission was not subordination, but a wholehearted response to her husband's love. Indeed, the family, along with work, is a focal point of life as God has designed it. That's why Paul devoted so much space in Ephesians to the issue of married couples, particularly in the section under consideration today. But he also talks of children and fathers. If a couple marry, for example, in their mid-twenties and live into their seventies, still married, that will translate to, say, 50 years or more of their lives have they have been living together. That's a substantial commitment, my friend. One would never enter even a business contract for that length of time without clarifying the work and costs that are involved. Yet do young people even have an idea of the lifetime of work they are taking on when they repeat their marriage vows? Now, there are roughly six phases of marriage. Each one requires husband and wife to work together as a team, combining their unique temperaments and strength. As with any team activity, they must pull in the same direction if they expect to complete all six phases with their marriage intact. Let me talk about those phases. First, during the first period of marriage, Two people from different family experiences and value systems begin to discover one another. Differences and similarities surface in areas such as finances, sexuality, faith, use of time and personal habits. Each difference affords an opportunity for conflict and hopefully growth. Patterns that the couple establishes during this phase will tend to affect what happens during the next five phases. The honeymoon typically ends with the birth or adoption of the first child, or in some cases, it ends with the dissolution of the marriage itself. Then comes the birth or adoption of the child, brings a rapid transition New babies, though welcome, can feel like an inversion, an abrupt intrusion into what up until now had been a relatively cozy twosome. Often the father particularly feels displaced as mother and infant bond through birth, nursing and nurturing. The childbearing years can be extraordinarily draining. 
Young parents often give out more than they can take in from their children. They may be able to offset the deficit somewhat by revisiting some of the practices that they saw valued during the courtship and honeymoon in their relationship. They will need to deposit lots of emotional support into each other's reserve bank accounts if they hope to maintain a positive balance during the demanding child-focused uh, years. This period typically ends when the last child begins school. As a couple, children pass through elementary and high school. New authority figures emerge, such as teachers, television personalities, scouts, masters, coaches, music teachers, youth pastors, and perhaps most influential of all, peers, both friends and bullies. Before, parents had the final word. Now others suggest or impose new values, decisions, and schedules that makes child-rearing a great time for parents to help children think about themselves and the world. Discussion, prayer, and support can create an atmosphere of unity that is essential if young people are to face the many factors that compete with the family. If the parents are secure in their bond of perfection, they can help their children tackle the tough issues, issues they themselves have been dealing with all along. During the child-rearing years, which may stretch out over two decades or more, parents need to keep making deposits into the Met's bank of emotional support. One way to do that is to keep dating and to guard time alone with each other. Again, too many marriages never make it through the stresses and strains of childbearing and child-rearing phases, and the families may actually break apart. With the onset of puberty, children begin to notice the opposite sex, and they also discover love outside the home. This is the beginning of the living process as children become adults in their own right and take steps towards independence usually through work, college, or marriage. In this phase, young adults tend to experience numerous trial runs of freedom, not all of which succeed. It helps for parents to remain available when their children have lost their way. Failure, whether in academic studies, financial matters, experiments in freedom or sexuality, offer important moments for learning and sometimes for forgiveness. If young people never experience the freedom to fail, they may never learn to leave the nest and fly on their own. Now that they are gone, now there remains just two of you. The couple will find out whether they have grown together or apart over the years. Unfortunately, by this point, many couples have developed a child or career-centered marriage rather than a strong relationship between themselves. Though understandable, that can be tragic since the empty nest phase typically outlasts the first four phases combined. No wonder so many marriages come apart as soon as the children have grown up and left. The couples have built their lives around their kids, and now they have nothing left in common. By contrast, though empty nest couples who have built into each other can experience a joyous recovery of full attention to their marriage, 
They have more time to spend with each other and often more money to spend. They may also have the bright privilege of welcoming grandchildren into the world. Then, the death of either spouse brings the survivor into the final phase of family life. So for so many years, the person has lived in relation to his or her mate and children. Now, the sudden experience of being alone again exposes the level of individual growth experienced during marriage. Some couples never establish patterns that make for strong individuality. They become so intertwined and dependent on each other that the loss of the partner causes the surviving mate to crush or wither. But if the person has cultivated other relationships among friends and family and developed personal interests and hobbies, life can still be somewhat joyful despite the painful loss of one's life partner and more so when you are connected to your Lord. Where is your family among these family uh, phases? God calls couples to a lifetime of work. Are you practicing that biblical family planning with a view towards the long haul? Paul gives us advice in his letter to the Ephesians. This is why it is very important to consider the advice in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5.25 Christ is the ideal husband. He is the husband's ideal example. The measure of Christ's love for the church is to be the measure of the husband's love for his wife. Husbands owe their wives the same kind of love and loyalty as Christ has for his bride. Supreme, self-forgetting, self-sacrificing love. In the economy of the family, and after the manner of Christ, husbands are to reign in love. God never asked a woman to submit to any man who doesn't love her and love her like this. Oh, this is Christian love on a high plane. Today, young people are finding out about sex and there are innumerable books on the subject of marriage. I may sound to you like I'm really an antiquated preacher when I say that some of them are really nonsense. And only the Christian can really know what real love in marriage is because it is carried on the high plane of the relationship between Christ and the church. There is nothing else like it. Ephesians 5 verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. You see, that is in the past. In the present, he is sanctifying the church with the water of the word of God. The cleanser, which is the Bible, is better than any cleanser that is advertised on radio or television. The word of God will not only take out the soiled spots, it will keep you from getting further spots in your life. Ephesians 5 verse 27, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. 
You see, in the future, he will present the church to himself, a glorious one, without a spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish. We will see the church presented to Christ as a bride, adorned for her husband when we study the book of Revelation. May I say that every woman is beautiful on her wedding day. I have officiated at many weddings, and I have never seen an ugly bride. That is how we will be presented before God. No young man engaged to a young lady thinks that she ought to be put through the fires of persecution or the great tribulation before he marries her. That is unheard of. So imagine anyone saying that the church must go through the great tribulation. The church is engaged to Christ and he is cleansing the church by the washing of the word. Keep in mind that when we use the word church, we are not talking about an organization with a tall structure, a pulpit, and even an organ. We are talking about the body of true believers. And this verse means that he is washing each believer, preparing each one for that great event, the wording of the Lamb. I believe that is something which is really taking place in our day. He is preparing us. So we have seen the past, present, and the future. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He is sanctifying the church with the washing of the water by the word. In the future, the church will be presented to him as a radiant bride with all sin removed. Then the church will be holy and unblameable. Here is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 to verse 32. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I have quoted this entire passage to you, so you can see how Paul draws on these two themes and goes back and forth, husband and wife, Christ and the church. After talking about Christ and the church, the subject goes back to husband and wife. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. The thing a couple needs for their marriage ceremony is not a champagne supper, is not a wine supper. They both need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They will have the greatest honeymoon that any couple would ever had if they are filled with the Spirit of God. Those sophisticated boys and girls who talk about sex and experimental relationships today don't even know what real love is. They know a lot about sex, but they do not know anything at all about the beauty and the ecstasy and the sweetness of a real Christian marriage. Be filled with the Spirit of God. The husband is to love his wife because the marriage relationship makes the wife a part of his own body. It is like the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of that body. On this basis, the husband is the head of the wife. It is unnatural for a man to hurt his own flesh, so the husband is to love his wife because she is his own flesh. 
Christ, knowing the weakness of the church, nourishes and cherishes her. Husbands are to do the same. Verse 31 is a quotation from Genesis 2 verse 24. Paul here refers to the relationship that existed in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. The first couple is a figure of the future union of Christ and the church as the bridegroom and the bride. Eve was created to be a helpmate for Adam. She was taken from his side, not modeled from the ground as were the animals. Adam was incomplete until they were together. God fashioned Eve, and I think she was the loveliest thing in creation when God brought her to Adam. Actually, one comedian has said that she had to be better looking than men because God had practiced on men, but he had experience when he made the woman. You see, Eve was a helpmate for Adam. She compensated for what he lacked. She was made for him, and they became one. And in the Hebrew, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. The word is almost the same. She was taken out of man. The new morality and sexual freedom are putting a lot of young people into slavery. It simply will not work. God meant for Christians to have this relationship on a much higher plane, not simply for the fun of it. Here is what John Lord wrote about Adam and Eve's experience. Here is what he wrote. When Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise, they yet found one flower, whether they wandered blooming in perpetual beauty. This flower represents a great certitude without which few would be happy. Subtle, mysterious, inexplicable, a great boom recognized alike by poets and moralists, pagan and Christian, yea, identified not only with happiness, but human existence, and pertaining to the soul in its highest aspirations, allied with the transient and the mortal events, and the mortal, even with the weak and corrupt, it yet immortal in its nature and lofty in its aims, at once a passion, a sentiment, and an inspiration. To attempt to describe woman without this element of our complex nature, which constitutes her peculiar fascination, is like trying to act the tragedy of Hamlet without Hamlet himself, an absurdity, a picture without a central figure, a novel without a heroine, a religion without a sacrifice. My subject is not without its difficulties. The passion or sentiment is degrading when perverted. It is exalting when pure. Yet it is not vice I would paint, but virtue, not weakness, but strength, not the transient, but the permanent, not the mortal, but the immortal, all that is ennobling in the aspiring soul. This is a description of the beautiful relationship, even from a person who had not even come to understand some of the things that we deal with today, but is describing the beauty of that relationship between Adam and Eve. It is God who gives this kind of love to believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
May I say to the young people today, don't accept anything that is second rate. No, don't take anything but the very best that God has to offer you. Don't rush into marriage. Wait upon God. Don't compromise the standards of God. God has the best plan for you, my friend. One of the reasons for the importance of lifelong monogamous marriage is that the relationship of the home is one of the analogies employed to describe the even more crucial relationships between Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 33 Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word nevertheless here brings us down to the earth with a jolt. This is the practical part about marriage. Oh, how sin has marred this glorious relationship, as it has marred everything else. But this relationship can be yours, if you want it to be the best. Paul brings the reader back to the ordinary routine of Christian living in the home. Let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself. This shows the kind of husband to whom the wife is to be in subjection. The husband and the wife in the home are to set forth in simplicity the mystery of the coming glory. This is a practical application of that which is highly idealistic. He brings the romantic into the realm of reality. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please send an email to info at twrafrica.org. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me repeat that email address for you. Info at twrafrica.org.